And now we do open God's Word, and we'll be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, beginning with verse 11. And uh, I think if you want to use your pew Bibles, feel free to do that. We only use them once a week, and so any virus that you might uh, spread on them, it's going to die before next Sunday. So feel free to open your Bibles. Um, We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, like I said, and um, I picked quite a summer to be away, I I guess, besides uh, beautiful weather. Um, I know that this summer was filled with tension and anger, uh, tragedy and division. I think uh, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis shortly before I left on sabbatical, and then Jacob Blake was shot in Kenosha shortly before I returned. And uh, I know that Brandon has touched on, on some of this, but I also felt that it was necessary just try to process these kinds of things and the whole racial tension in our country with you biblically. And um, because I think we just need a, a biblical framework through which we can see events like this and, and measure our response as, as Christians. And I know that, you know, some of us were like, hey, we've heard enough about this. And Um, I apologize for that, but I just think it's something that we do need to look at. So with that in mind, we're going to spend just a a few weeks looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to look, first of all, this morning at Ephesians 2, the second half of the chapter. And uh, I'll begin reading now with verse 11. This is God's word. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away and have been brought near through the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he came or by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens and God's people, or with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, like I said, we're going to look at this portion of Ephesians. Next week we'll look at Ephesians chapter 3 a little bit. The following week we're going to look at Ephesians 1. This morning I just want to look at two things with you from this text. The first is the ultimate cause of our division. Okay, the ultimate cause of the divisions that are in this world. And then second, I want to look at the only remedy and source of our peace. All right, so just those two things. Don't get your hopes up. It's not going to be that brief. Uh, but let's begin. Uh, the ultimate cause of division. I remember I was on the road shortly after Jacob Blake had been shot. It was a day or two following, and I heard a press conference on the radio that was um, broadcast almost in, in its entirety. But that um, press conference began with a pastor, actually, and that caught me by surprise. It was the pastor at the church of uh, Jacob Blake's mother. It was where she uh, worshipped, where she attended. And in his comments, I think before his prayer, he said this, and he said it as only um, an African-American pastor can say it. <clears throat> and sometimes I wish I had that skill. Um, but he said this. He said, our problem is not just a skin problem. He said, I say this regularly to my congregation. Our problem is not just a skin problem. Our problem is a sin problem. It's not just a skin problem. It's a sin problem. And I think as Christians, really, that's something that all of us should be able to nod our heads and say, yeah, you know, that's right. That's really the message of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's really the heart of, of the gospel. That's something that every Christian, no matter what color, what race, what ethnicity, that's something that all of us ought to have on the forefronts of our minds as we begin to think about these things and talk about them, have conversations around them. That should always be there. We have a sin problem. All of us have a sin problem. Not just some people. All of us have a sin problem. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about that sin problem. In the first half of this chapter, which we didn't read, he talks about it in terms of our vertical relationship with God. And he says we have a sin problem that spoiled that relationship between God and ourselves. In this next half of Ephesians chapter 2, he goes on to say that we also have a sin problem that has affected our horizontal relationships, our, our relationships with one another. Those relationships, too, have been hit by the problem of sin. Listen to how Paul um, first begins to talk about this subject. Right? Verse 11, and I think it'll be up on the screens as well for you. He says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. What Paul is doing here, and, and you may not pick up on it always, but what he is doing here is he is highlighting the racial tension that existed in his own day. Okay? And this is where, friends, you and I need to begin as well. Racial and ethnic tensions have been around for a long, long time. Sometimes I think we in the Christian church, and, and 
I guess I've been a little distressed at how the evangelical church in America has responded to these sorts of topics. But it's almost like we're the first generations of Christians who have ever had to deal with this sort of thing. And it's almost like we're a little exasperated when the subject comes up. It's kind of like, what, we've got to talk about this again? Sort of like, you know, when you address your kids about how they haven't taken out the garbage again. And they look at you like, do we have to talk about this again? It's not that big a deal. Can't we talk about something else? And, and that's the impression I get sometimes from evangelical Christians here in the United States. It's almost like we feel like we are entitled to lives that are free from any stress and problems of this nature. And so why bother us with this again? But friends, what Paul is telling us right here in these verses is that the Christian church has been in the middle of this stuff since the very beginning. Christians who have gone before us have struggled with these things and they have led the way in how we as Christians are supposed to deal with these things today. And Paul addresses that very topic here. Look what he says. What he does here is he begins to focus on the racial prejudice that he saw right in front of him. Now, this wasn't the only prejudice that he saw in front of him. It wasn't the only division. But this was something that would have been first and foremost on his radar, the division between Jew and Gentile in his community. How he calls it, the terms that he uses, he says, remember, they call you the uncircumcised. Who calls you that? The circumcision. All right? The circumcision, look at the Gentiles and they call them the uncircumcised. Friends, those are derogatory terms. That's pejorative. It's, it's disparaging. What, what Paul is using here really is a racial slur. Okay? That's what the Gentiles in the community are being called by the Jews, by his own people. And when they say those words, they say them with contempt in their voices. And friends, this is the world we live in, isn't it? I mean, we're used to these things. There is so much division and tension right now between us. And, and we divide up into all sorts of groups, don't we? Not just black and white, but there are Americans and foreigners. There are Democrats and Republicans. There are men and women. There are people who think it's good to wear masks and people who don't want to wear them. There's Wisconsin and Ohio State. And, you know, the, the divisions just never seem to end. Paul's talking about our world. And right here in this opening verse, he should have our attention. But what I find even more interesting, okay, is, is Paul's then Paul simply highlighting the fact that there are divides in our world. What I find more interesting is what he pins as the source of that division. Okay? Look at verses 14 and 15 with me, and I think these will be up on your screen again. Paul writes this, For Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law, with its commandments and regulations. Do you hear that? What Paul is saying is the source of all the, the racial and ethnic tension between Jew and Gentiles. It's not their politics. It's not their skin color. It's the Mosaic law. 
the Pentateuch. Okay, what we learned as little kids. It's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I always thought those were a part of our Bible, a part of our Old Testament. And the Old Testament was a part of our Bible. In fact, it's part of Jesus' Bible. How could Paul say that the problem is with the Mosaic Law? But that's what he says. He says Jesus has triumphed when he abolished that law. How could he say that? What does he mean? We believe that the law is good. Right? So how does Jesus triumph by abolishing the law? Let me try and explain that. And the first thing we need to see here and understand and even affirm is this. Not all distinctions are bad. Okay? Not all distinctions are bad. Some people think that they are these days. Right? Some people don't want any kind of distinctions in life. No distinctions between gender. No distinctions in the workplace. No distinctions between ourselves and God. Right? Some people don't even want distinctions between themselves and their pets. We're all sort of one. No distinctions in this world. Distinctions are not bad. In fact, not all distinctions between racial and ethnic and national groups are bad. In fact, it was God Himself who actually introduced the distinction between Jew and Gentile into the world. It was God. Remember, he was the one who called Abraham out of the nations and made a covenant with him. That was where that whole distinction began. It began with God. But as we know and as we've heard many times before, there was a reason that God created that distinction. There was a reason he called Israel out of the nations and that was so that they could be a light to the nations, right? Israel was to be God's servant nation. Israel had a special calling, a special role. They were to be God's agent of blessing to all the other nations of the world. They were to be a nation of priests, right? Priests who mediated between the God of the world. They were to bring God to the nations and the nations to God. That was to be their role, their distinction. They were to be, in all of their distinctiveness, holy Right? That's what distinguished them. They were to be holy like God is holy. They were to reflect God's own character to the nations. They were to model what life is like under a true, under a true God. They were to model the shalom of God for all the other nations, right? That's why we have all these, all these prophets and laws telling the people what it meant to be holy. They were to care for the poor. They were to make sure that widows had resources. They were to make sure that orphans were fed and had homes. They were to make sure that their courts and their law enforcement was just. In all of these ways, they were to be unique so that all the other nations could look at them and see what a great God reigns over all this earth. God did create that distinction between Jew and Gentile, but He did so for salvific purposes, for saving purposes. And ultimately, if Israel would have been uniquely Israel, it would have been to the benefit of all peoples. And so we see not, dis- not all distinct- distinctions are bad. Right? And if you think about it, Think about the very first reality in this world. The reality of God. The existence of God. He exists in distinct beings. Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not three persons who are all the same. They are all distinct, and they revel in each other's distinctions. They delight in each other's distinctions. And that's how God created us as well. Even nations. He created us so that we would bless each other through our distinctions. Right? What do we say about the variety of life? We say it's the spice of life. Variety is the spice of life. That's not that doesn't just apply to going out to eat on Saturday night. You know, so we have a choice between Mexican restaurants and Thai restaurants and Italian restaurants. All of these nations in their own particular culture and ways have ways where we can bless each other and benefit each other. Distinctions in themselves are not bad. Okay? But then the question we have to ask is, so what happened? What happened? Why does Paul then say that the Mosaic Law needed to be abolished? Well, it's for this reason. Because Israel didn't use the law to live distinctly. They didn't use the law to teach them how to live holy lives. Rather, the law instead made them arrogant. The law made them proud. The law made them aloof. They saw themselves as aloof above the other nations. They, they arrogantly were judgmental when they looked upon the other nations as the uncircumcised, the uninformed, the uninitiated. That's what the law did to them. So the question becomes, how did that happen? How did a good law that was intended to teach them to be holy, teach them to be a blessing, how did a good law okay, get twisted and bent and turned on its head so that instead of being helpful, it became harmful? Well, that's the question we have to answer. And to get at that, I want to introduce just another new concept to you. Perhaps it's not totally new, but it's the concept of the powers. The powers. Or as Paul refers to them in chapter 3, which we'll see next week, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. These are the spiritual forces of evil. Now, I've often hesitated to even speak about the powers, and I think for a good reason. It's because the, the, we live in an age of wild speculation. Okay? about the character of heavenly beings and spiritual activities. These ideas seem to fascinate us. And they fascinate us to the extent that we write novels and we make movies that make millions of dollars and get people all on edge. In fact, it wasn't long ago that there was a huge push to see spiritual forces of evil behind just about every negative thing that happened in life. In fact, you know, it got to the point where silly things happened. Like if you locked yourself out of the house, fellow Christians would, would come around you and they would want to pray down the spirit of master lock. You know, and if, if you had a flat tire on the road, they would encourage you to do battle with the spirit of Goodyear. There are all sorts of crazy things like that. Crazy things that really took responsibility away from ourselves, right? Responsibility away from making sure there's good tread on our own tires to just blame it on these nebulous spiritual forces. 
And so I want to really be really clear about just a couple of things when we talk about these powers. The first is that the powers seem to be unique spiritual forces. Okay, they're not really personal forces that, that you might read about in the Gospels or that Jesus refers to. They don't have names or faces. They're not demons that, that take up residence in a body. They're not addressed by or cast out by human beings. In fact, we really don't know much about them at all. We don't. We really don't know much about them, which leads me to the second thing, and that is that the writers of Scripture themselves are not really interested with these cosmic beings in themselves. Okay? All they seem interested in is the impact that they have on the human realm. And the impact that they seem to have on the human realm is they work against God's shalom. They seek to undercut and destroy the good order of God's creation. They promote division and exploitation and oppression and disorder and injustice. These are the works of the powers. Paul refers to them vaguely. He refers to them quite often, actually, but vaguely. Um, the best illustration I think I can give you right now, looking at time, is, is Ephesians 6.10. We've all heard these verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, nothing surprising so far. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who are all those? What are they? Listen to what Timothy Gombus writes about this. He writes this, When the biblical writers want to talk about large-scale injustices or systems of economic or, and social oppression and exploitation, they do this in terms of the powers and authorities. And this is what I really want you to hear. Like us, the ancients looked at their world and noticed that there are social and cultural patterns that are somehow larger than the sum total of human decisions and actions. In other words, when we look at our world, we can't explain everything that happens on the basis of human action and decisions. Like us, the ancients looked at their world and noticed that there are social and cultural patterns that are somehow larger than the sum of total human decisions or the sum total of human decisions and actions. Let me just try and put that in, in, in layman's terms for us. Let's try and talk about that a little. Let's think about the wonderful game of football. Okay? Football is a great game, isn't it? I mean, you, you grow up as a little kid and the kids in the neighborhood say, let's go play football. And so you get to go out in the backyard or, or in a playground. You know, you've got this wonderful green grass and fall weather and you, you learn how to run and jump and catch and throw and tackle each other as well. But um, it's, a great, it's a great game. Some people think the game of football itself is evil. I think that's silly. Golf, maybe, um, but not football. 
But I do admit that there is a dark side to football, isn't there? I mean, we all know it, right? It's called, what is it, CET or um, traumatic brain injuries. None of us wants to see that, I believe. Um, Especially the parents of a junior high student or a high school student. No one wants to see their child get their bell rung to the point that they can't see colors straight and all of that sort of thing. In fact, if you were to go up the line, right, there's probably no coach. There's no university president. There's no football team owner or management person in management who would say, you know, I wouldn't really care if that person um, sustained some kind of brain injury where they couldn't think straight anymore and where they have headaches all the time and they feel so depressed that they want to commit suicide and sometimes do. Where they have early onset dementia at the age of 40 or 45. I don't believe that there's anyone really in all of these organizations who would say, you know, we really don't care about stuff like that. I don't care about this person. Or look at a veteran football NFL player and say, I really don't care what that person is going through. I don't think anyone thinks that way. But ask yourself this. Why is it then, with all the evidence of these things that we have these days, Why is it that when I'm sitting at home and it's Friday night and I hear the high school football announcer sort of booming through the neighborhood or I drive past the lights and I just get this feeling of excitement? Like it's it's fall. It's, It's football time. Why am I sort of excited to see the Packers playing the Vikings today? Why do you feel that way? Because I don't believe there's any of us here either who want to see that kind of brain injury. I don't believe the players want to experience that, but they keep going out there, don't they? There are some things we can't explain by human interactions, by human actions and thoughts. They just seem to happen. And they seem to go on happening. Let me give you a couple other examples, right? Think about mob mentality. We've all heard of mob mentality, right? That when people get together in groups, they seem to do things that as individuals they would never do, right? Um, We often say that a crowd has a mind of its own. And if you're ever in a crowd like that, you might say, well, there was just something in the air. That caused me to do that. If you don't believe in this sort of thing, someday go across the parking lot and go to a junior high basketball game at Brookfield Christian School. Okay? I have seen kindly, mild-mannered, gentle men and women stand up and shout and scream things at referees that I'm positive the next day they would be totally embarrassed that they said. There was something in the air. You can't explain it, really. But it's there. Think about corporate culture, what we call corporate culture, right? We bring in consultants um, to change our corporate culture. 
We want a more positive corporate attitude, we say. Well, who exactly controls corporate culture? I mean, if the culture is bad, who do you pin it on? Can you point to one person and say, well, it's their fault? No, it's almost like it's just there. Or think about our system of social aid here in the U.S. People who are living in poverty often will speak in terms like they feel trapped in poverty, like, like they can't get out. But they will use terms as if, as if they're actively being suppressed and being held down in a situation that they, they can't break out of. Now, I used to be one of those people who, who thought, you know, if you just work hard, and if you're, you're organized, and if you're disciplined, really anybody can make it out of poverty. I mean, we live in a country full of opportunity. That's, that's what I used to think. And then um, Jackie and I began trying to navigate that system for one of our daughters. And what we quickly found out was I was off base. I mean, what we ran into was a mind-numbing complexity of agencies um, that overlap in their services. Okay? And so you sign up with one agency and then you find that there's another one who probably does the same thing, but they do it better. And so you try to switch, but no, you know, you can't switch from this one to that one or you can't use both at the same time. And on and on it goes, right? And then, and then you've got you've to constantly um, make your way to these social service offices and, and, and whenever you get there, it never fails, no matter how many documents you bring with you, there's always one more that's needed. And you can't go any further until you have that document. Okay? And what they don't seem to understand is that even with good transportation, it took me half a day just to get down here and take care of this. And for my daughter to take care of this through public transportation, it's never going to happen. Just the other day, we got a phone call from a social worker um, and, and the social worker asked my wife, well, why doesn't your daughter answer my phone calls? And we looked at the cell phone and it said, no caller ID. That's, that's the number that she calls from. How many of you pick up your cell phone when it says, no caller ID? No one. And you wonder why it's hard to communicate with somebody. Now, this is what we want to ask, friends. These agencies are all created to help people out of poverty. They're not there to keep people suppressed. They're not there to keep people down. And when you talk to the people who work there, most all of these people got into these professions. Why? Because they really want to help people. So how is it then that you have all these good human intentions and they seem to be working against us instead of for us. Well, you know what Paul would say? Paul would say it's due to the corrupting nature and influence of the powers and the principalities. You see, it was because of that corrupting nature of the powers and the principalities that Israel ended up regarding her election as a privilege rather than 
a mandate for mission. You see, what the powers do is they take people who, who they want to follow the law, they want to do good, they want to please God, but they're also broken and sinful people who are proud, right? Who are fearful. And the powers seem to work through those kinds of things. You see, we have a sinful predisposition. And in the end, the law gets twisted in a direction it was never intended to go. Friends, wherever racism rears its ugly head, even today, what we have to remember is this is what we are up against. The tables are tilted. Okay? You and I are sinful. We are sinners. And the powers know that. And they know how to take advantage of that. Let me bring this even closer to home for you. I would be willing to wager here, okay? And if, if you're watching online, I, I'm speaking to a congregation that is almost totally Caucasian. All right? I would be willing to wager that there is not one person in this congregation who would ever hesitate to have a person of color over to their house. Have them over for dinner. You wouldn't hesitate to make a wonderful meal, um, to have some wonderful conversation, to genuinely ask about their lives, right? I don't doubt that in the least. And I believe that you would even defend that person, defend them against any verbal or physical attacks that they, that they might experience. Even closer to home, we have a little, a little less than two-year-old living with us. You saw a picture of her. She's African-American. Okay? And, and she has experienced wonderful love from those of you who are here, at least when we're together. And I have no doubt that, that everyone here wants to see a little girl like that grow up in an atmosphere of love. And you would hate to see her, right, when she's 7 or 10 or 13 years old, walk into a store with her white friends and find that she is the one who's always suspected of, of well, she might do something wrong, keep your eyes on her. None of you would want to see that. And yet, how do we explain some of the thoughts that go through our minds when we're driving down the street and we see someone we don't know, looks unfamiliar? How do we explain those ugly thoughts, those fearful thoughts? We can never forget that we're sinful human beings. We are proud, proud of our own achievements in life. We're selfish and therefore often very self-protective, right? We want to make sure that all our stuff and ourselves are, are, are remaining in good shape. We're self-centered. And therefore, we can't even imagine you know, anyone having a more difficult time in life than, than we have. And the list goes on. And, and friends, the powers use that. They use, us, they use those things to make us unsympathetic to the plight of others. 
They, make, they use those things to make us uninterested in listening, uninterested in hearing the stories and experiences of others and learning from them. They make us willing to jump to conclusions and accept cheap stereotypes and generalizations. They make us afraid of people that are different, suspicious of people who are different, that they might hurt us or take what we have. And pretty soon, we're the circumcision. We're looking down our noses with disdain at the uncircumcised. What we ought to understand, friends, better than anyone else in the world as Christians is that we have a sin problem. So what's the solution? We're almost done. The solution is Christ. We know the solution. Christ, who is our peace. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Jew and Gentile come together as the church, as the temple of the Lord in Christ. Now we're going to talk more about that temple next Sunday. But I want you to hear, in him is what Paul writes. In him. Jew and Gentile come together. In Him, black and white come together. In Him, liberals and conservatives come together. In Him, we come together. But here's the kicker. It's only in Him. And that's what our world doesn't want to hear. It's only in Christ. Our problem is a sin problem. Christ is the only one who can overcome our sin. Ultimately, our oneness is not found in marches, good as they might be. Our oneness ultimately is not found in more education, as much as that's needed. Our oneness is not found in more cell phone cameras or more police body cameras, wonderful as those might be. Our oneness is not found in who you're going to vote for. Those are all good, maybe necessary things, but true oneness will only come in Christ. In Christ. Why? Because God brought peace by abolishing in Christ the distinction-making function of the law. In Christ... God abolished the distinction-making function of law. How does that work? Well, before, before Jesus, how did we find salvation? How did we know God loved us? Well, we held up before God anything that we could, right? We held up before Him our good works. We held up before Him our our, our accomplishments, our achievements, and we said, please accept us, God, because of this. We held up before God our race, our ethnicity. We held up before him all those things that on human terms we thought were really good, our status in the world. We said, God, look at this, look at this. I've achieved this. Please accept me. That was what the law did. And it created all sorts of distinctions. What do we hold up now? What's the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is that the only thing that you can hold up to God and ask for his acceptance 
is the crucified body and the raised body of Jesus Christ. All I can offer God is the righteousness of Christ himself that he gives to me as a gift. That's all. The grace of God, friends, is the, is the great equalizer. And what it has done is it has pulled the teeth from the powers. They have no leverage over us anymore because we don't need all those distinctions. They serve us nothing. The only thing that serves us now is the body and blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's the great equalizer. You have nothing more than I have. I have nothing more than you have. It's in Christ that we find our oneness and only in Christ. Friends, how do we become a church that handles the whole race issue well? We have to believe the gospel. We have to cling to the the, the crucified body of Christ as our only identity. In Christ is our only identity. And if we begin to grab those old identities again, right? If we begin to grab those things like, well, Republican and Democrat and and black and white and and Asian or, or whatever they are, whatever tribe we were a part of, if we begin to see those things again as our ultimate identity, all we begin to do is reintroduce pride and exploitation and disorder and injustice and division back into our lives and in our communities. And so we have to be convinced of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our identity, our ultimate identity, is nothing more than being in Jesus Christ. Make sure the only thing we trust for our salvation is His work. This is all we have to boast about. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians, in the first part of the Ephesians. We have nothing to boast about other than the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's only then, only in Christ, that the dividing walls will fall. Sorry I spoke so long this morning. I know it's difficult, especially for those of you online, but let's, uh, let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, would you preach the gospel to us over and over and over again? Because like the song says, those who have heard it the most need to hear it again and again. And we love to tell that story of how we are one in Christ and hold up the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, his death and resurrection, that is our identity. We have nothing else to boast about. And then, Lord, teach us. Teach us to live with one another. Break down all those walls. Lord, you have triumphed over the powers and over the authorities because they have no leverage over us anymore. You have been raised above the powers and principalities above the heavens. You are seated at the right hand of God, your Father, in all glory. And may all honor and praise be yours. And may we be your people, people of the gospel, people who know how to love, even when that love comes hard. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.